Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, please, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to come and stand here and open up your word. Lord, I am in total awe and completely blown away by your word that is open before us, Lord. I pray that as we begin to read and study and pray, Lord, that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive just this word in abundance, that it would take root, it would change our lives even more as we leave here today, Lord. So thank you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So at this place in Matthew chapter 25, where I'm, we're about halfway through it or so from last week, Jesus is in the last days of his life, literally days, uh, just days left before he is going to be taken and crucified. At this point, he has finished all of his public ministry um, and now is just speaking with his disciples privately. Remember, they came to him and they asked them about the, the signs or the times, the end of the age, or as we looked at last week, what are, what are the signs of the times when um, all, all the parts become whole? And Jesus has spent a lot of time in these last couple of chapters warning them of the danger of hypocrisy, pretending to be something that you are not. Over and over again, he called the Pharisees hypocrites because their religion was outward. They had everybody fooled. Anybody who looked at them outwardly would think that they were holy and righteous. But on the inside, they were faking it. They were faith fakers, clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. And Jesus could see through all of that. He knew who they really were. In fact, Jesus can still see clearly into each one of us. He knows if you are faking it or not. Every time I say that line, I hear this. He knows if you are sleeping. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been... <laughs> he knows if you're a hypocrite. He knows it. When he was calling the Pharisees hypocrites, he was saying it right to their face. Remember, he was saying, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. I actually believe that he was giving them a chance to repent of that and be saved, to recognize it. The reason he was telling it to them was so they would realize it, or they would own it, and they would be, uh, and ask for repent, repent, uh, forgiveness and repent and be saved. I believe this because the Bible says that Jesus is full of compassion, that he doesn't desire for anyone to perish, but to repent. I believe that in each of the next few examples that he has given, that we've looked at these parables, he includes a, a bad end. In the parable, he includes a bad end for those who are pretending to be something that they're not. It's like he's saying, I know exactly who you really are. And I know your fate as well. But it doesn't have to be so. By telling them the end 
ahead of the end. He's saying it doesn't have to end that way for you. There is still a chance, he says, to be genuine with God. If you're here today and you're starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable because you're a counterfeit or you're faking it, I'm telling you right now, I might not be able to recognize it, but God knows. But he's also saying, but you still have a chance to be genuine. And it's as simple as this. And you say, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and forgave me of my sins, and I receive that. It's as simple as that. And then you go from being faker to faith-filled, just like that. Well, let's pick up where we left off. Chapter 25, verse 14. So read along with me here. Again, he's telling another parable an example of, an earth, of a spiritual reality. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. You know that when he's talking about talents, he's not saying, okay, you're going to be a juggler and you're going to play the clarinet and, you know, unicycle. no. He's not talking about like talented abilities. Talent in this parable is a, a measure of money. It's a measure of money. In, in fact, though, I did read that when we say that someone has talent now and we're talking about ability, it actually comes from this parable. Whereas someone has talent, meaning they have a gift that God has given them. So in this parable, it says that there was a, a master who divvied up his money how he gave five talents to this servant, two talents to this servant, and one talent to this servant. And at this time, these guys would know um, that a talent was worth about 6,000 denarius. Remember, a day's pay was one denarius. So 6,000 denarius, that's a large sum of money that he has just given to the servant. Remember, this is a parable, so it's just an example. But so it's, he's giving them large sums of money with which they... I don't know if the expectation is that they'll do something with it. And then it says in verse 16, then, then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. And after the long trip, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents became came and brought the five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I gained five more talents besides them. Look how excited he is. Look, I got five more with what you gave me. As the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I love that phrase. In Greek, the, the, the phrase is... Um, experience the result of the Lord's eternal blessing. I do like that. He, who, uh, he also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have, gain I have gained two more talents besides them. Again, he's very excited. Look, 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 you gave me two. Ah, I have two more to give to you. 
His Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The first two servants didn't just feel a responsibility to their master, but they embraced the opportunity to use what they had been given by the master to increase his estate. It doesn't say anywhere that they were told that they were going to share in the profit on the principle. It doesn't say that they um, were operating out of any kind of a fear of the master. They were simply being faithful. Notice that they both received the same reward despite the fact that they had been given different resources and produced different incomes, but they received the same reward. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Come and experience the result of the Lord's eternal blessing. Then, verse 24, the one who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. <laughs> the third servant didn't seem to share the same understanding as of the master as the first two servants. They seemed eager to please the master. But this servant is full of of excuses for why he did nothing. In fact, it seems like he's blaming the master. Well, you're a hard man, and you know you, you reap where you didn't sow, and that's why I didn't do anything. The first two faithful servants didn't say any of these things about the master. It's as if the third servant doesn't really know the master at all. Maybe his understanding is coming from or based on what he has heard from other unhappy or dissatisfied, dissatisfied servants rather than any kind of a real relationship with the master, like the first two who seemed excited to just please him. Look at the response of the master in verse 26, but the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. Well, those are words I hope I never hear from God. You wicked. I mean, slothful, hesitant to act. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited the money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have abundance, but from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at the master's response to this third servant. You wicked, lazy servant, worthless, hesitant to do anything at all. Cast him out into outer darkness. Now that seems like harsh, harsh judgment. But you know what? This isn't a parable about 
being saved by the amount of good works that you do for the master. We know that salvation is a gift. It's offered to us freely. We don't earn it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's no amount of works that we can do for the Lord to earn the gift of salvation. This this parable is another example of Jesus' warning that he knows the difference between a real servant of his and a counterfeit servant. A servant who doesn't serve isn't really a servant. If I claim to be a a musician... And I can be very convincing and convince you that I am, but I don't actually play an instrument. I'm not a musician. In this parable, the third man isn't being damned for his lack of good work. He is being cast out because he has found out that he is not who he was pretending to be. Let's move on. Verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Man, I love this verse. You know why? Look at the first word. When. Not if. When. I looked it up in Greek. You know what it means? When. It means this, at the time when the condition is met. That's the meaning of this word when. At the time when the condition is met. When Jesus comes in glory. Do you know when that will be? No, we don't. Only the Father knows. We looked at that last week. Remember, only the Father of the bridegroom knew when it was time for the bridegroom to go and collect his bride. Only God knows that time. But it will come to pass. When the Son of Man comes, he will, he, in, in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Amen. I can't wait for that day. But this is a time, it says, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now, that's a kind of a Bible-y phrase to us, right? Like, if you've ever been in church, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard, oh, separation of the sheep and the goats. We've got to separate the sheep and the goats. To them, this actually meant something, right? At that time, and a little bit now still, if you had goats and sheep, you could graze them together during the day, but when the day ended, you separated your goats from your sheep, right? The, the goats were, like, um, like mean, and they would damage the sheep. Goats, I mean, come on. In this, in this little st- goats are bad in the Bible. Goats are bad. And I believe that because they have them weird eyes, like square pupils. What animal has square pupils? Goats. No, he's going to divide it. He's going to say, the sheep are mine, the goats are lost. He says there's going to come a time when there is a separating of, during the day they graze together, but there will come a time when I will separate them. He says, that reminds me of Matthew chapter 13. Remember when we talked about the wheat and the tares that got sown in among the wheat and the wheat looks just like, the tares look just like the wheat. And they're like, well, should we go in and pull them out? And he says, no, leave it to me. Let them grow up together. There's going to come a time, though, when I will separate the wheat from the tares. And he says the same thing again. There is going to come a time when I will separate the sheep from the goats. 
And it says here that he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, if you're a very, like, if you don't like to write in your Bible, I still encourage you to underline that part, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you know what that says? That this was always God's plan. Always, all the way from the very beginning, the foundation of the world, this was God's plan. So when someone says to you, well, if God knows everything and he knows what we're going to do and he knows what we're thinking, why on earth would he ever put that tree in the garden so that they could eat from it and enter, let sin enter the world? Why would he ever do that? And it was because... It was his plan from the beginning. This is the plan. God says, I want to end up with a creation who chooses to worship me. In order to get that, they have to have something to choose between. Gart tree. Don't eat of it. And they're like, mm, do you mean don't eat of it? <laughs> and so it's like, don't eat of that tree. When you said don't eat of that tree, did you mean don't eat of the tree. <laughs> but he said there has to be a choice for them to get all the way to the end so that when I have created paradise for them, it's filled with those who have chosen to worship me. It was prepared from the beginning. It wasn't as if somewhere along the line he was like, I don't know, maybe we should make a heaven and they could all go there. What do you think? Because this whole earth thing isn't working out. He prepared it from the beginning. Then he goes on and he says to them, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. But then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting father, uh, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You catch that? Yes, God created hell. No, he did not create it for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. And yet, people still go there. Why? Because they choose it. Do you understand? God did not create hell, fiery eternity for men and women. But we choose it when we deny Jesus. He said, I've given you a way. I've given you a way to escape that did not create hell for you. I've created a way for you to avoid all of that. And some people, many people, like, I don't know. I don't think I believe all of that. I don't think I, has anyone ever said to you, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. That same person will read one thing written by one person on the internet, and they're like, well, that's obviously true. But two and a half billion people believe this. And they're like, nah, I don't know. I saw this site some time ago. Come on. 
He's like, I didn't create hell for you, but you are choosing to go there if you reject this simple truth. It is prepared for the devil and his angels, but they're choosing it. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And, they, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice that the judgment of the sheep and the goats is, isn't based on moral standing, whether they were good or bad. He uses the same measure of judgment for all. The same words, when I was thirsty, when I was hungry, when I was naked, when I was sick. You see, it's a comparison of attitude between those who were his and those who were lost. He points out that the ones who are lost to him displayed an attitude of indifference to Jesus. Ah, eh, Jesus, I don't know. I don't need that. I'm glad you found something that works for you. But I'm good. I'm good. Their ultimate fate, it says, is they'll be cast into everlasting punishment. And uh, what kind of God would send someone into everlasting punishment? You ever heard that? The kind who loves this world so much that he sent his son in place of people who hated him and rejected him so they could be spared from everlasting fire, which, again, he did not create for them, but for the devil, and who has waited more than 2,000 years, giving people chance after chance to repent and be saved, but who loved themselves more than anyone else and turned their back to him, shake their fist at him whenever something bad happens, and still he desires that they be saved. That's the kind of God. That is the kind of God. Let's go on. I went really short last week, so I'm just tacking on that 20 minutes from last week right on to the end of this one, if you're all okay with that. 26, now it says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all of his sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus does a very interesting thing here. He connects his crucifixion with the Passover. Last week we talked about how all the parts came together to make a final product. And how this is what Jesus has been telling them about himself. But now he isn't just going to tell them. He is going to, he's been showing them. Let me explain this. He says, in two days is the Passover. So this is what the Passover was. It goes all the way back to when the Israelites were still slaves in Egypt. And God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, um, Pharaoh, it's time. You need to let these people go. And, and he said no. And then, and then Moses came and said, okay, well, then there's going to be this plague. And then there was 
Um, and then Pharaoh was like, oh, my bad, you guys go. And then, and then as they were going, we were like, no, 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 wait, no, I changed my mind, I changed my mind. And so then it was like plague after plague after plague. And, and finally, the 10th plague that God said was going to come was that he was going to send an angel, the angel of death, who was going to come over and pass over the whole area. And um, if they wanted to be spared from that judgment, they had to go out and select a lamb, bring it into their house, um, they needed to slaughter it, drain its blood, take it, the lamb's blood, and paint it on the post of the door as a sign uh, for the angel of death to see um, and, and pass over their house. Now, that night, they were supposed to roast the lamb and then eat as much as they could of it, and whatever they couldn't finish, they were supposed to burn up the rest of it in the fire. Um, and that's what happened. All of the Israelites did this. They slaughtered the lamb. They painted the blood on the doorposts of their house. The angel of death came over his, uh, Egypt, um, saw all the houses that had the blood, and passed over those, and all those were spared. But all the other houses that didn't have that, the angel of death came and, and took the firstborn in every family, including their livestock, by the way. Then he said, from this point forward, you're going to remember this every single year. In fact, when they were out of Egypt, when they were finally out, he said, this month that we're in, the month of Nisan, is going to be the first month of your calendar from this point forward. And so then what they would do from that day forward, every year, on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, they would go out and they would select a lamb. Um, and it was called the Lamb Selection Day. It's a catchy, you know, it's, they're clever. The Lamb Selection Day. And they would go out and they would find the lamb and they would bring it into their house for four days. And it would live closely with them for four days. And in that four days, they would be examining that lamb to make sure that it has no fault at all. And then on the 15th day of the year, they would kill uh, the 15th day of that month, they would kill that lamb, drain its blood, and then they would paint that blood on the doorposts of their house in, in remembrance of Passover. Now, in Jesus' day, you know, they're still doing this. Um, but now they're all in Jerusalem, and so it had become quite a big enterprise, if you recall. Now, rather than traveling to Jerusalem with the lamb that you've selected, you would just go a little bit ahead of time so that um, on the 10th day of the month still, of the chief priests and the elders of the church, they would go out and they would get all of these um, sheep that they've been raising outside of the city. And on the 10th day, they would bring them into Jerusalem through the sheep gate. And then they would uh, bring them in and they would all be inspected for that four-day period in, in the temple until it was the 15th day, which would be Passover, when they would all be handed out to everybody, or the people, literally, they would hand them to people, and the people would bring them back in so that they could be, um, their, their throats cut, the blood let out, and so that they could be sacrificed. So they were still doing this process at Jesus' time. So on that 10th day of the month of Nisan, when the sheep were all being brought in, we actually have a different uh, name for that day. It's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus the lamb who had been selected for all of us came into the city on the same day that all the other lambs were being ushered into the city for lamb selection day. Now we know that when Jesus came into town, he then went into the temple, their house, and was there teaching for four days, being examined by the chief priests and the elders. By what authority do you do these things? Who sent you? Why are you doing these things? They were looking for some kind of fault in order to accuse him. What did they find? No fault. He was without fault. 
So then they sought to kill him, it's going to say, by trickery or secretly, on the very day that the lambs would be sacrificed. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only, if you recall, was prophesied to, the Messiah was prophesied to arrive in Jerusalem on that very day, actually comes in on the day, the day, the selection day of the Lamb, same day, ministers in the, and is examined in the house for four days and then slaughtered, and his blood was painted on the posts of that cross. And guess what? The angel of death now passes over us if we receive that. Oh, man. Does that blow your mind? Does that help you to understand it was prepared from the foundation of the world? Let me just blow your mind a little more. On the third day after Passover, there's another feast. It's called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, that feast was to commemorate um, God's provision as well as to look forward to a great harvest. And what they would do is they would go out and they would get the first sheaves of barley wheat that had sprung up and they would chop it off and they would bring it in, they would give it to the priest, and then he would stand before the altar and he would wave it left and right and they would all say, oh, this is, in, this is to help us remember that God provided for us as well as we're looking forward to the harvest that is to come. Well, did you know that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, went into the grave, rose on the third day, the day of first fruit? (laughs) And we remember and recognize the provision of God by sending us his son, Jesus Christ, through whom there is going to be a great harvest. Man. Now, In case you think that I'm very clever in figuring this all out, (laughs) I'm not. Um, Paul actually wrote about this um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Paul recognized this himself because he writes, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul saw this when he was, he was there. He saw this and he wrote it and he says, clearly Jesus is the first fruits. He's become the first fruits. Man, that the Word of God is amazing. It says then in verse 3, and we're not going to do the whole chapter. I just have to get a couple of, just a couple of these parts are just too good to leave. And then the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of, high, of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, they, didn't want to, they didn't want to crucify Jesus, but they were going to take him by trickery. Um, I'm not sure they would have said it that way, but I think they were saying, we need to keep it on the down low. Um, and they thought, well, we've got to kill him, but we can't do it on the feast day. So what they do is they say, well, we'll, we'll get it done like secretly overnight, you know, where nobody... Where nobody uh, knows what's going on. And we'll look at that next week, kind of the timeline of how they did that. But they did it like they took him in the middle of the night. They tried him. They had him on the cross by nine o'clock in the morning. Who's even, you know what occurred to me? Like when there's this big crowd and they're like, crucify him, we want Barabbas. Like, who was that crowd? I mean, this is early and it was like seven o'clock in the morning. Who's, who's up that early? It's, I think it's all the drunks from the night before. They haven't gone to bed yet. They're plotting to kill him. 
they think that this is their idea. They're like, let's get it done before the feast. Let's get, the, let's get him up on the cross. Let's get him crucified before the feast. They think it's their idea. But really what they are are tools in the hand of God who had already planned this from the foundations of the earth. They're just doing what he needs them to do. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, by the way, we know that Jesus didn't spend any nights in Jerusalem. He would go in Jerusalem and then he would leave and go and stay with his friends in Bethany, which is just outside the city, where he knew Mary and Martha and Lazarus and apparently this guy, Simon the leper, who I can only imagine um, isn't a leper anymore, um, or else why would they be there? But um, it says that a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it out on his head and sat at the table. Now, you know, listen, we know from the other Gospels that this is Mary from Mary and Martha, that she's there and she brings out this alabaster flask. Now, it's very important that you understand this isn't just like a bottle of perfume that she comes out and unscrews the top and pours them out on Jesus. This was a, a bottle that had to be broken open in order to use it like a one-time thing. You got one shot at this. It meant that she was intentionally breaking open that bottle. And uh, many people believe that the cost of this was like a year's wage, the cost of this alabaster flask. In fact, it was so valuable that it was something that a person might have and she might be saving it for her wedding, that special occasion. Or maybe she, it was something that you would save in case a loved one died and you would anoint their body with it. And, and um, that kind of makes me laugh because here's Lazarus sitting here, right? And like their brother and sister, and I think he's sitting there going, why do you still have that? I was dead like, like not too long ago. How come you didn't break that open for me? <laughs> She brings it intentionally. She breaks it open. She pours it over Jesus' head. And in the other Gospels, it said it ran down. It got to his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. And it says that the fragrance filled the room. I just love that. Her worship of Jesus filled the room. It just got on everything. When we come together here, and we open the word and we, we have a sermon, but we sing when we start and we sing when we end. And we actually call that portion like the worship. We call this the worship team because what they're doing is they're helping us get to that place where we are worshiping God. And I'm wondering, is your worship filling this room? Is the fragrance of your worship filling this room? Are you coming in and breaking open that alabaster flask and letting your worship pour out and permeate this room and get all in your hair so that when you leave here, the smell of it goes out to everybody around you and they're like, man, you smell good. And you're like, that's worship. Worship. <laughs> it's the new fragrance, worship by Jesus. <laughs> are you breaking open the alabaster flask or you're like, I don't know, it's very costly. I only get to do it. I mean, it has to be something really, I'm just going to put it away for a little while. Are you going to let it get in your hair and you're going to get out there and people are going to be like, man, you smell good. I'm sorry, Joe, I know you don't have any hair. I, I hope that's not why you're leaving. Let it get on your shirt or something. 
You know, if you've ever gotten perfume or, like a, or a scented oil on yourself, it stays, doesn't it? It's on you for a long time. Like, I wonder how long this was on Jesus after this. Was he being dragged out of the Garden of Gethsemane, still smelling spikenard from Mary's worship? Was he being punched in the face, but still smelling the fragrance of Mary's worship? Was he sitting there stretched across the beam while they flayed his back open with the whip, still smelling the fragrance of Mary's worship? You have an alabaster, alabaster flask. Are you going to break it open? Are you just going to put it away for another time? The disciples weren't happy about it. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? We know the other Gospels say that it was, this was led by Judas. Judas, the one who was in charge of the money, Judas, the one who cared most about money, looked at this and said, ah, what a waste. We could have done something good with this. Can you imagine? She's worshiping Jesus at his feet. She's poured this oil and she's worshiping Jesus, and he's like, ah, oh, we could have done something good with that. You know, the other disciples jumped on board with that, you know. It says that it was led by Judas, but the other guys were like, yeah, what a waste, Mary. We could have done something good with that oil if that doesn't belong to us. It's really funny how they were like, it doesn't belong to us anyway, but we could have done something good with it. Now Jesus says, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Is that true? Yeah, we're reading it today. It's over 2,000 years old. We're still reading about her, pouring out her worship onto the head and feet of Jesus and wiping it with her hair, being covered in the fragrance of worship. <sighs> then it says, one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he saw opportunity to betray Jesus. You know, um, they had just wasted a lot of money. And now he's, I don't know, frustrated. And now he's like, I, you know what? I, I'm not going to get the money there. I guess I'm going to get it over here. So he says, what, what do you guys give me if I betray Jesus to you? And they say, 30 pieces of silver, which is, by the way, did you know the cost of a slave? If you had a slave and, and your neighbor's ox mold him to death, your neighbor had to pay you 30 pieces of silver. That was the cost of a slave. So Jesus, Judas comes and says, look, what will you give me to betray Jesus to you? And they say, we'll give you the cost of a slave. It says, now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus, and he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. First of all, these guys come and they say, um, 
Jesus. And we know in the other gospel it says that it was Peter and John. Like these, like Peter and John, these are the apostles. Now they come and they say, where, where do you want us to, you know, where do you want to do the, the Passover? And he says, go into, go into Jerusalem and you're going to see a guy. So really, <laughs> there's like three million of those. So um, in another gospel, it says that you'll find a man carrying water. Again, now to us, that doesn't mean much. But to them, see, that was a woman's job. So to see a man carrying a, a big jar of water would have been an obvious sign. And so they were able to go in. But really what Jesus says when his apostles come to him and they say, Jesus, where do you want to you know, do the Passover? He says, I want you to go into town. He basically says to them, go into town and set the table. That's it. Just go in and set the table. And I imagine these apostles are like, uh, I mean, Jesus, that's not a very big, I mean, that's pretty, go set the table. Can't you send like Bartholomew and Nathaniel or like the, the bee apostles? Can't you send those guys? And he says, go set the table. That's it. Now they go. And I'm wondering, like, are you willing to just do God's errands? The small things? When God says, go set the table, are you like, ah, you know, don't you have something bigger? Don't you have some big ministry that you want me to like lead or, or you know, start or you know, something big? I mean, don't you have something big? And Jesus says, why don't you go set the table? Just do that. Start with that. I want to end with a little story. There was a guy, his name was Edward Kimball. Just an ordinary man. Taught Sunday school at his church. He sensed that God was leading him to share the gospel with a 19-year-old shoe salesman. So after nervously pacing outside the shoe store several times, he went in and he found the young man in the back room storage, and he shared God's love with this shoe salesman, and this kid received Christ. It was 1858, and the salesman's name was Dwight L. Moody who went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in human history. But the story doesn't end there. Several years later, when Moody was preaching, a pastor named Frederick B. Meyer was deeply stirred by Moody's preaching. And as a result, he started a nationwide preaching ministry. A college student named J. Wilbur Chapman accepted Christ after listening to one of Meyer's sermons. Chapman became a pastor and started holding evangelistic outreaches. One of the assistants that he hired was a guy named Billy Sunday, who was a former baseball player. What a great name, Billy Sunday. I'm changing it to that later. Sunday went on to become a powerful evangelist, reaching thousands of people with the gospel in the early 20th century. One of Billy Sunday's evangelistic crusades was held in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, after a group of enthusiastic businessmen wanted to do more to reach out to their area, and they asked an evangelist named Mordecai Ham to come and preach. During Ham's revival meetings, a young farm boy known to his neighbors as Billy Frank made his way down the sawdust trail and gave his life to Christ. Today, we know him as Billy Graham. Look at the chain of events, starting with a man who was willing to do one small thing, like talk to a 19-year-old kid about Jesus. Kimball reached Moody, 
who touched Meyer, who reached Chapman, who helped Sunday, who reached businessmen in Charlotte, causing them to invite Ham, who reached Billy Graham, who changed the world for Jesus. And it all began because one man was willing to go set the table. You guys ready? Ready to go set the table? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word and what you've revealed to us through it. Lord, I thank you that you remind us that everything that is happening is happening because you've prepared it from the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray that your message of uh, you knowing who is real and who is counterfeit, but, but offering a way to be saved has not been lost on anyone here who is trying to fake their way. Lord, I pray that even now you would come to them in their heart and in their mind and let them know that they have been forgiven, but they need to accept that gift that's offered to them in order that they might escape the judgment that is to come. Lord, I thank you for giving us these parables that show us the beginning and the end so that the end, the fiery end, can be escaped from, avoided. Lord, I pray for those here, servants of the Master, who seek to please you, Lord, because we love you, Lord. I pray that we would not get caught up in the high holy tasks that we think are the most important, but rather we would be willing to just go and set the table. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that it is for your glory it's never for our glory, but it's for your glory, Lord. Lord, as we leave this place today, I pray that we would go out reeking, Lord, of worship for you. Lord, that we might draw other people to that fragrant smell of worship. And when they ask, Lord, we might say, it's all for Jesus. Thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Amen.